0: Two years ago, a dear sister uh, used to be part of our church. she now lives in a different town. Uh, this sister sent me a link to listen to a sermon about anger, and I thought it was strange. Uh, was it a hint i don 't think of myself as an angry person. Why would she send this to me? Uh, I listened to the sermon because i 'm polite. And God used it. God used it to show how I expressed anger. And after listening to the sermon, I asked the lady if there was a reason for sharing, and she said no. She wasn't trying to give me a hint. No, she she'd found it useful herself and thought, just generally, it was a good thing to listen to. Uh, this week, I've been mulling over what Jesus says in Matthew five twenty-one to twenty-six. Once again, God's showing me things about myself how much I need the grace of Christ and the work of the Spirit in my life. As my prayer, God's going to do the same in us all today. So we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. A few weeks ago, we heard Jesus call his disciples, uh, call his people to be salt, light and a city on a hill, to be good, different, to stand out from our world. Today, we're going to hear Jesus call us to stay salty when it comes to anger and conflict. But before we get into what Jesus says, one of the questions that rattles around is, is this teaching for us? Because we're not Galileans sitting on that hillside listening to Jesus. And as you read the, uh, heard Cliff read the passage for us before, you would have heard some things that don't sound like our experience. Jesus begins verse 21, you have heard it was said, and then he quotes the law of Moses. And you might think, oh, well, yes, I've heard you shall not murder, but that's a law given to Israel. And I'm not biologically descended from Abraham. The law wasn't given to me. And even more, as you read through the six times Jesus begins, you have heard it was said, you realize he's not only quoting the Old Testament law, He's quoting the way the law was being taught and explained and applied in his day. So is Jesus speaking to us? Then you get to verse 22. He talks about being answerable to the court. Literally, it's the Sanhedrin, the first century Jewish ruling council. And then verse 23 talks about offerings and altars. And because of Jesus, we don't have special buildings. We don't have sanctuaries or temples. And so that means we don't have altars or sacrifices. And it sounds like Jesus is speaking to Jews under the law of Moses and not Christians and especially not non-Jewish Christians. What's going on? What Jesus is doing in this part of the sermon is he begins with a general truth. You have heard X, but I say Y. He's showing us what we heard last week, how to read the law as it's fulfilled in him. So he starts with the general truth and then he illustrates the truth. And the illustration makes sense to first century Galilean Jews. So in this case, it talks about Sanhedrins and altars what we've got to do is to look at the pattern and apply it to our context, both our cultural context and our theological context. Because the big difference is that we are on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit. We're already living in the future Jesus was teaching about. So that's the way we're going to approach this part of the sermon, general principle Specific application back then, and we're going to have to do a bit of work to think about how it applies to us now. Uh, the first example Jesus gives is about the law and murder. So read with me from verse 21. So this is Matthew 5:21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment so jesus quotes the law of moses it's from what we call the ten commandments you shall not murder and the thing about law is you're to keep laws and if you break them you face judgment a few people recently have mentioned discovering that their driver's license was expired Now, the law in Australia says to drive on public roads, you must have a current driver's licence. If you're caught driving with an expired licence, the police officer isn't going to say, oh, it's okay, you're a safe driver, you're free to go. No, you'll get the judgement the law defines. But the other thing about law is, if the law says you've got to have a licence... It doesn't also mean you've got to do a defensive driving course every couple of years, even if that's a good idea. That's how the law works. Do what it says, nothing less, nothing more. What Jesus teaches is when it comes to the law of God, the right way, the true way to understand God's law is different. Now, Jesus isn't contradicting the law. He's not saying, you've heard it said, don't murder. Well, murder's not that bad. You can kill whoever you want, as long as you're not angry at the same time. He's not affirming mercenaries or assassins. No, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter because the law has always been about God's heart. It's always been to show God's saved people how to live as his saved people. And when it comes to the law, you shall not murder God's heart isn't that you manage to get through life fuming with anger, but just manage not to not kill someone. No, God wants our hearts to be like his. But, but did you hear what Jesus says at the start of verse 22? I tell you, being angry will lead you to judgment. Surely Jesus doesn't mean this. I mean, he he mustn't have had to deal with the kind of people I do at work. Has he ever had to deal with with my neighbours? And so we read what Jesus says and we start looking for loopholes. Well, what about righteous anger? Didn't Jesus, hey, Jesus, you got angry with those money changers at the temple. Actually, my anger makes me more like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we call out liberals for doing that kind of thing with other parts of the Bible. We must not do the same. We need to hear every word Jesus says, especially the ones that reveal our sin. What Jesus says forces us to slow down and think. You're looking for the loopholes. Well, is your anger really righteous? God's angry at sin and injustice, so it's right to be angry when God is dishonoured and at injustice. But let's be honest. Almost always, I'm angry because I'm annoyed, I'm offended, I'm stressed. What's really going on is I'm angry because you don't treat me like God. Why are you angry when your child disobeys? Rarely is it because of the the, the anger directed at the sin in their life. If you're anything like me, it's because their sin insults me. Oh, Their sin means, now I've got another problem to fix and I'm already too busy. I'm too tired to break up another fight. That's not righteous. That's about me. And that's the anger Jesus says we must abolish. Here's a test to see if your anger is godly. In your fury, do you evangelize? Do you speak the good news of Jesus? In Acts 17, Paul is angry at idolatry. And so he proclaims, Christ is Lord. If we were really angry about sin and injustice, then in our anger, we'd be telling people how to be freed from sin, how to find forgiveness in Jesus. When we don't respond to our anger with the gospel, we show we are not righteous. It's not about sin and injustice. It's just about me not being treated like a god. And Jesus says, when you know the truth that he is God and we are not, then the law about murdering goes deep into our hearts. And one of the first ways we see anger acted out is with our words. Have a look again. We're part way through verse 22. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Uh, That word raka, it's an Aramaic word. The translators aren't sure what it means, so they leave it untranslated. Most likely it comes from a word meaning empty. So it probably means something like numbskull or moron. You have a bit of fun with that, don't you? Just imagine what raka could mean. So what we do with our, our mouths matters. Our words matter. Jesus says it's not just murder that deserves punishment. Insults do too. Why does God care about our words? Isn't it sticks and stones that break bones? Uh, Years later, Jesus' younger brother talks about how seriously God takes our words. Uh, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Why does Jesus make such a big deal about insulting people, speaking to them with contempt? It's because people are made in God's image. Speaking with contempt for a person is contempt for God's image. Some of us are so used to using insulting language, we don't even notice it. Some people drop four-letter words all the time. They call people this and that, and you know the words. For many, it's such a habit, they don't even notice it. But I reckon it creates a cycle. Those words, even when they're just a habit and they're just sounds coming out of your mouth, they are words that bite. They're angry words. And angry words grow anger in your heart, which leads to more angry words. Now you might think, well, but I'm a good Christian. I I don't use those kinds of words. At least not unless there's a really good reason. But I hear some of us routinely calling politicians we don't agree with. We call them clowns. Or the person who tailgates or, or doesn't drive fast enough on the highway. We're, we're angry and we, we call them an idiot. And you're, and you're, you're there thinking, but, but it's true. But what does Jesus say? Pretty arrogant of us to think we know better than Jesus. And Jesus' words are crystal clear. In the kingdom of heaven, insults are out of bounds. But, but, but what about Jesus himself? He calls Pharisees vipers. He calls them snakes and he says they're hypocrites. Is it wrong to call someone a fool if they've been foolish? I think there's a difference between saying, you moron, out of anger and looking at someone and saying, oh man, you're being so foolish. There's a difference between angrily trading insults and grieving how sin leads people to destructive, eternally destructive behaviour. And the second leads us to prayer and speaking the gospel. Just like with anger, the difference between us and Jesus is he uses his words to call out sin and to point people to God. For us, we throw out insults to make others feel small and us feel big. Jesus calls Pharisees vipers to reveal their sin and call them to repentance. And we see how Jesus himself lives out what he teaches about insults. At the point where we would most expect someone to trade insults, when Jesus is arrested as he is mocked, flogged and spat upon, he doesn't blow up in anger. He doesn't insult those who insulted him. No, he was silent like a lamb led to its slaughter. Jesus practices what he preaches. He shows how serious he is about what he teaches. But he's even more than an example. Because Jesus refrained from throwing out insults, because of this, we know Jesus' death can atone for our sin. He dies not to atone for his sin, but the sin of his people. He dies so people like us, who have mocked and insulted other image bearers, we can be forgiven and restored to God. And it's this reality that we will fail, we will get angry, we will use words that wound. This reality leads Jesus to the final application of his teaching. In the kingdom of heaven, peacemaking is the priority. Verse 23, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there Remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus gives two examples of how important it is to resolve conflict. Uh, the first has a religious setting, the second a legal setting. The first example is extreme. If you think about the context. Remember, uh, we're up in Galilee, and the altar it's the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. So this is the story. You've just led your prize ram 120 kilometers to Jerusalem. You get to the temple. And as you're standing there about to give your ram as an offering, you remember your neighbor. You remember the argument you had with him about the retaining wall collapsing. You remember the words you said. You'd forgotten them, even on that walk, because in your mind, you'd won. You'd got him. But as you stand there in God's holy temple, you remember that he's still fuming. Jesus says at that moment, either tie the ram up or lead him all the way home. Because before you do your religion, you need to be reconciled to your neighbor. The example is extreme, but it's extreme to make a point. The point is, In the kingdom of heaven, there is such a priority on restoring relationships. There's such a priority on being blessed peacemakers that we press pause on religion to deal with conflict. This is something we need to hear. There are too many churches and families torn apart by conflict. I'm devastated when people who claim to love the Lord Jesus, who claim to know lots about the Bible and doctrine yet refuse to address conflict. Now, we're here in this particular story and with the language of offerings and altars. There's no direct link to Christianity. We don't have altars in sanctuaries. Part of the difference of Jesus is that worship is radically expanded. Instead of worship and religion only happening when you do religious things, John 4, Romans 12, Hebrews 13 teach that in Christ, worship is whole heart and whole life. And of course, we worship as we gather, but that's because we worship all the time as living sacrifices. So true worship, true religion, isn't mere ritual, singing or prayer. True religion is actually dealing with conflict, restoring relationships, being reconciled. All of this is worship because we are gospel people. And this means the application of this passage is not about the Lord's Supper. I sometimes hear people say, if you're in a beef with someone, particularly someone who's another member at church, you shouldn't share in the supper until you deal with that problem. Now, that's a possible application. Though the supper isn't an offering and the Lord's table isn't an altar, Jesus' point is dealing with conflict Repairing relationships is, is the priority for those who've been reconciled to God. Is there someone you need to go to today? The second illustration takes us to the law court and it's, it's pretty much common sense. It's better to settle out of court because once you go to litigation, all bets are off. And it's even more so in the picture Jesus gives because it sounds like we're the guilty party. And so, of course, the smart money is doing whatever you can to not end up in front of a judge. Jesus' point is, do whatever you can now to reconcile a relationship. It might seem costly. It might be awkward or embarrassing to say sorry. There might be repercussions or other costs when you own up to your part of the problem. But it's much better to take the initiative to go be reconciled because leaving it to justice will be more costly. The teaching, this story is so obvious. I wonder if Jesus is alluding not to a a human court, but to the heavenly court. I wonder if Jesus' point is, it's better to be reconciled now, no matter how difficult it is, it's much better than to face up to God not having tried to be reconciled. Though, of course, Jesus went to the cross for all our sin, even for our sin of running away from reconciliation. He died so there's assurance of forgiveness for all who trust in him, even those of us who are too stubborn to apologize. But the point is, we don't want to get stuck there. The point is, God takes peacemaking seriously. We must not say, let's sin more so grace may increase. God has given us his spirit to change our hearts. And this is why uh, we're going to run the Resolving Everyday Conflict course in growth groups next term. Uh, We did this course a few years ago. It's fantastic, practical, biblical steps to take to deal with conflict. Jesus thinks this is really important and none of us do it well. And that's why we're running the course. If you did it a few years ago, do it again. If you're like me, you'll have forgotten lots of it or at least not done what it says. And if you haven't, if you are now the most godly peacemaker, well, then the rest of us need to learn from your wisdom. So what's Jesus said to us? How are we going to be a community where these things become a reality for us? Uh, what I'm going to say now, a lot of the ideas come from a great book called The Heart of Anger by Christopher Ash and Steve Midgley. Uh, you can get that on your Kindle or Reformers or Kurong. I found this was a really helpful book in digging into where anger came, comes from and how God can help us deal with it. So here are a few steps which are kind of inspired by this book. So first up, uh, recognise anger for what it is. Recognise most of our anger is not godly. It's selfish and sinful. And also recognise the situations where anger is more likely to flare up. Is it when you're stressed, tired? Are there certain relationships where you've become stuck in a pattern of anger? And as we recognise our anger as sinful, repent. Turn to God. Admit this sin to him. And then we need to do what Jesus says. Uh, For those we've hurt because because of our anger, be reconciled to them. This is a powerful application of the gospel. Because in Christ, all our sins are forgiven. We don't need to lie about our sin anymore. So let's be honest. We need to learn to be quick to say sorry. Sadly, I've needed to model that, even in the last week to people who are here. We need to learn to make true apologies, no excuses, owning our sin, uh, we also need to learn how to accept apologies and grant forgiveness. And resolving everyday conflict gets really practical on that kind of stuff. All right, so we've recognised, repented, reconciled. Uh, as a habit, we need to replace anger with thankfulness. And when you start to get angry at other drivers on the road, give thanks, you've got a car in the first place. Uh, we can uh, get give thanks that God has helped us to Um, sorry, we can be thankful that God is angry at sin and rightly angry at sin, and yet pours out his grace on sinners like us. Uh, When you start to feel angry, thank God that he's equipped you to know your heart. Replace anger with thanks. And last, I couldn't think of an R word for this, be part of a community of change. Without Jesus, most communities and friendships coddle our anger. They'll tell us that we are right And justified in feeling angry. Many communities actually unite around shared anger. But church is a community centred around Christ clothed in His gospel. We're all on about repentance and forgiveness. We're on about telling the truth about our sin and reminding each other how good it is to have sin forgiven in Christ. And we're a community of the Holy Spirit. In church, we have examples of those who've been formed by knowing Jesus, who've learned to replace anger with thankfulness, who've learned to say sorry quickly, and also how to say, I forgive you. There's lots of encouragement in the world to be angry. But in Jesus, we're called to a kingdom where the prince of peace reigns. So let's pray that that will happen. Please join with me. Father God, thank you for Jesus' words, his challenging words, his words that at time we struggle to take seriously. Help us take them seriously. May we be people who recognise that our anger is rarely righteous, but is selfish and sinful. Give us supernatural strength to turn from anger and to replace it with thankfulness. Help us use our words for blessing, not cursing, that we might build others up. Make us quick to apologise to make peacemaking our priority. In all this, may we stay salty and not become tasteless and worthless. Help us shine brightly in our families, schools and workplaces and in our neighbourhoods that people will see that the difference Jesus makes and come to trust in him. Amen.